bit of a risk this morning. Second Chronicles chapter 28 is it's an excellent story. So I'm super excited to preach on it. I, I saw the text because I had to think about, you know, we're going to take some time off of going straight through books. And uh, I'll look at the lectionary. I wonder what's coming. And the first thing I see is Second Chronicles 28. And I thought, oh, goody. I get to do some lore, some, some, some history. And I know if, if you took history classes in school, maybe history is about a bunch of names you don't know and memorizing some dates. and You got to pass a test and who cares? And I, I get that. But, but this is not what I mean when I say history. I mean the things that actually happened that are like too amazing to believe. All of the fantasy and the fiction and the excitements. I mean, you've heard the, the proverb. It's not a biblical proverb, but you, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. You've heard that, right? Well, now you have. Uh, and, and this is a fact. I mean, the, the history of the world is filled with crazy. It makes for titillating listening. And no less so than the reign of King Ahaz, one of the worst kings to ever rule over the little nation state of Judah, the, the collapsed remains of David's empire and Solomon's empire now kind of crushed down into a little corner, but still there because God has promised that he's going to keep a line from David alive on the throne for forever and forever, so long as they will trust that he's going to do that. And we come to this guy, King Ahaz, who if he's going to do anything, it's not that. He's going to insist on not believing in Jesus with all of his heart and all of his mind and all of his soul and watch it just get worse and worse. It's, it's an amazing story. And I, I'm, I'm going to get there. We're going to get into it. But then where is Jesus in the story is the challenge. When you read through books like Kings and Chronicles, it's easy to get caught up in asking, why did this guy do that? Should I act more like this guy or like that guy? And it's, it's easy to moralize these stories as if the whole reason that they're here is so we can learn how to be a certain way. And it's not all wrong. We want to be good people. I mean, really, just think that one through. No, I don't. What? Like, who are you? Don't want to be good? It makes sense to want to be a good person. And then when you run that through what the scripture says, that by nature we're not, and we don't know how to be, but we must be shown. More than that, we must be saved. What well, kind of puts a new spin on anything? So, of course, you're going to go to the Old Testament and you're going to look for to see who is faithful and who is not. And what do the faithful people do? And what do the unfaithful people do? And, of course, what are the results? That's all fine. But that's really not why it's written. It's written because it is the actual history of the lineage of the one man, Jesus Christ. And then again, from God's promise to David, from you will come a man who will rule forever from your throne. They track that history. They track that bloodline all the way down and even to, as we'll see in a couple of months, right? A decree going up from Caesar Augustus that all the world is to be taxed. And so Joseph takes his wife, Mary, who is pregnant with child, down to Bethlehem, the city of David, the line of David. So I don't want to lose that, and I don't want to lose the cross, and I don't want to lose what I just talked about from Galatians over there, grace. 
This is about God's grace, about his mercy. One of the most amazing things about King Ahaz is that God keeps promising him that he's going to save him. If only he'll believe that God's going to save him. And Ahaz just won't believe it. He just won't believe it. The book of Isaiah begins in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah is Ahaz's grandfather. Uzziah was a really great king. He was faithful. He worshiped Jesus with all his heart. He tore down the high places. I know he studied the Proverbs of Solomon because he was known for his wisdom. He even built these war machines that hadn't been seen in this era of life. Think of like a trebuchet or a, or a catapult. He had these on the walls of Jerusalem. This guy was way ahead of his time. The problem is that at a certain point, he's so far ahead of his time, he starts to think it's about him. So the bad story about King Uzziah is that he decides that since he's king and super wise, he can go into the temple and do what the priests do. Now, in other cultures, that's probably okay. But in the Sinai covenant, which God had established with this people, that's super not okay. Like even the Levites don't get to do that, the sons of Levi. Only those who are descended from Aaron get to do that. Those are the priests. So he goes in and he's going to offer some incense on the altar that only the priests can offer incense on. And the priests are saying, stop, don't do it. He says, who are you to tell me what to do? I'm the king. And he walks in and he starts to do it. And the moment he does it, he breaks out in leprosy. Now, leprosy is like cancer on the outside that's contagious. Let that sink in. We don't really deal with it much in the world today. There are areas of the world where it does exist. I believe we have ways of treating it that we didn't before. But nonetheless, back then, you get this thing and nobody wants to get near you forever for good reason. I mean, social distancing on a whole nother level. Yeah. So he immediately breaks out in leprosy, which also, by the way, makes him unclean. That means not only can he not offer incense like a priest, he can't come into the temple courts to present sacrifices at all. He's outside the community. He's outside the camp. He's kicked out of their religion, not really, but sort of. Effectively, practically, he can't come to church anymore. He knows this. And so one of the best things about him is as soon as it happens, no one has to say, hey, by the way, you should get out of the temple. He turns, he runs, he flees. And he lives in isolation the rest of his years. I believe it's another 20 years. And his son Joram takes the throne, but doesn't really reign because he's still taking orders from Uzziah, who's living like in a tower, kind of running the system on paper for his son Joram. Joram we don't know very much about. Joram mainly rules as a secondary to his father in his name, although he does have about 20 years of reign after Uzziah dies. And he's mostly known for building up the cities. There's a bunch of cities. He improves their walls. There's a time of prosperity taking place. Judah, the southern kingdom as a nation, is never very strong. Israel in the north is always bigger, always richer, always stronger. But this is one of those times when Judah does pretty well. And so that's under Joram. But then uh, Joram dies and his son Ahaz, the guy we're getting to, He takes the throne, and he's about 20 years old when he takes the throne. His story is going to begin on page 379 of your pew Bible. I encourage you to find it so we can can actually, actually look at it verse by verse here. Ahaz's story, page 379 of your pew Bible in the book of 2 Chronicles. Now, while you're getting there, 
kind of try to listen with one ear because there's this other problem. It's sort of a scholarship problem, but it's not really, but it's, it is. If you're going to read your Bible straight through, which I don't always recommend, I'd rather you pick stuff that you can get into. But, but if you were to read your Bible straight through, you're going to get through Leviticus and Numbers and wipe the sweat off your brow and be excited that you're into Ruth. Okay, it's a much better story. And then you're going to come to Samuel, which is the story of Samuel and King Saul and King David. It's a fantastic story, First and Second Samuel. And then coming out of Second Samuel, you're going to get into the book of First Kings, which is about Solomon and then about his son Rehoboam and then about his son and then about his son and then about his son. You're going to read all the way through the books of First and Second Kings, all the stories of the kings of Judah and Israel, and then you're going to come to First Chronicles. And in First Chronicles, you're going to get something that feels a lot like Leviticus or Numbers. Lists and lists of names for like eight chapters. Oh, it's just going to like make your eyes bleed. It's so boring. Lists of names that you don't know, that I don't know. We can look them up. We don't know. They're just names. But if you can get through that, then what you'll find is that the story of David starts over again. And you get the story of David and the story of Solomon and the story of Solomon's son and the story of his son. It's, it's like it's the same thing all over. So why is it there twice? First and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. Well, obviously, the, 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 the sarcastic answer, I guess, would be, well, because God wants it there twice. Huh? But when you study them, you find that there is a difference between them. And here's, here's the key difference. First and second Kings is about the kings of Judah and Israel. First and second Chronicles is about the kings of Judah. You don't get the northern kingdom in Chronicles. I mean, you do, you fight them and stuff, but you don't really get a history of who they were. So First and Second Kings is really a cataloging of the destruction of northern Israel first, and then the fall of Judah. And First and Second Chronicles, a little differently, are a cataloging of the faithfulness of Judah. Now, don't get me wrong, an unfaithful king is going to be called an unfaithful king. But there are these little pieces there that show you that the writer was concerned with the line of David specifically, as tied to the faith in the temple specifically, as God's promise to send us Jesus specifically. And so you'll see that the primary mark of every single king, no matter what they do in Chronicles, is where they're buried. If they're buried with David, good thing. If they're not buried with David, bad thing. If they're buried outside the city, super bad thing. Now think about the implications of that for the day of resurrection. Why do we have graveyards? Graveyards are not something that existed before Christians. People don't have graveyards. They might have places where they put bones. Mainly what they did was they burned the bodies. Burn it all up. Get rid of it. What are you going to do with it? Why do we have graveyards? Why did back in the day, I mean, before all the laws and prescriptions from the states that we live in about where you could bury a body to protect certain industries, let's be honest, uh, before that, every church would have had a graveyard. This whole lawn out here would be a graveyard. Why? It was because they believed that they weren't done yet. And they wanted to be by their family when they came back. And you might as well be around all the congregation that you spend every Sunday singing to Jesus with when you come back as well. 
And this isn't, again, new. This is what the tombs of the kings are about. That David believed in the resurrection. Solomon believed in the resurrection. And so the kings who don't get buried there, they're the guys who obviously, by their practice, don't, don't believe in the resurrection. Okay, distinction between Chronicles and Kings. Hopefully you got a little bit of that there. I recommend if you are reading the Bible straight through, when you get there, don't read it straight through. Read Kings and Chronicles together. Find the places where they line up. It'll, it'll make a lot more sense that way. All right, and we're, we're going to look at a little of 2 Kings 16 to, to catch some pieces. There's similarities and there's differences. Beginning though, 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. Here we go. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And burned his sons as an offering. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Therefore, the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. There's a ton of little nuggets packed into this thing. I mean, you could just get off on, the guy's 20, how smart can he be? But the thing is, you do have a number of kings who come to the throne very young, and they're wise enough to know, I might not know much, but I need to pray to Jesus. I need to worship the true God. I need not to go out on the hills and corners and think that God is to be found anywhere in whatever I want, but go to the place where he's put his name, where he's given the promises. Now, he has, does the very opposite of this. He does not do what is right in God's sight, as David had done. But again, verse 2, walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. So the northern kingdom had fallen back into idolatry. Idolatry means to worship a picture, to worship an image, to worship an idea. They had fallen back into idolatry right away. Remember, David, he does pretty well. Solomon does pretty well, then doesn't do so well, and then does pretty well again, I believe. But because he doesn't do so well, he worships at the high places. He has many foreign wives and all this kind of stuff. Uh, God says, well, I'm going to split the kingdom in half after you die. So his son Rehoboam, he ends up losing most of the kingdom to this other guy named Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Okay? So you don't have to remember all those names. But if you can remember, this first king of the north, Jeroboam, one of the first things he does is he builds two golden cows. That sounds familiar, right? Bottom of Mount Sinai, Moses is on the top, getting the Ten Commandments, people are on the bottom. Aaron takes their gold, puts it in a pot, out jumps a cow. Where'd that come from? Oh my. And then they begin to worship, and they begin to drink, and they begin to have orgies and all these things, and God's going to destroy them all. And Moses says, please, God, no. And he shows that intercessor, that pre-Christ stand between God's wrath and what people deserve. He stands in the middle, and God says, fine, go down, I'll have mercy on them. Okay, so golden cows, they come back under Jeroboam. They're settled up in the north, and they remain in the north until the day of the north's destruction by Assyria. Again, a great ancient nation. Think of Rome only sooner. 
So uh, Ahaz decides that's a good idea. He likes what he sees up there. So he even makes metal images of the Baals. Okay. Baal or Baal, as some people call him. Uh, Baal is Zeus, but Zeus just doesn't exist yet, right? Zeus is Jupiter, but Jupiter just didn't exist yet. All the ancient pagan religions have the same gods. So the God of the sky, who is the Lord of power, that's Zeus, that's Baal. Uh, and he is represented by a bull, a bull face, and his altar would have had a bull connected with it. Right, so think like golden cow. All right, not so far off there. And it was the common religion of the people of uh, of uh, of Canaan, who come to be known as the Philistines at a certain point. And and by the way, if you ever worried or wondered what Palestinian means, just replace the vowels: Palestine, Philistine. That's the history. Okay, I'm not saying all Palestinians are worshiping Baal, but this history is real. Is what I'm saying. All right. So they are worshipers of Baal and Ahaz thinks this is a good idea. I'll go worship the gods around me, but it, it gets even worse. So that in this valley of the son of Hinnom, he burns his sons as an offering. Uh, now, I, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure uh, Baal does not necessitate, necessitate human sacrifice. Human sacrifice is more associated with another god of the Philistines whose name was Molech. Moloch. And Moloch definitely required human sacrifice in order for things to go well with the crops. Yeah? And so if you wanted everything to go well, you had to go out and every so often offer a baby, a living baby, as a burned alive offering to keep God happy. All right? Not our God, but their God. The problem is that on the first place, and then Israel exists to get rid of that. That's why God sends them into this land in the first place to get rid of that. And now they don't only get rid of it, they, they bring it back. They start doing it themselves. Yeah. And so uh, he offers his own sons in the fire. What a horrible thing. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places, the hills, and under every green tree. Paganism likes to believe that there's lots of gods, not just one, lots of spirits. So whenever there's a spirit, you might as well worship it. A good example of this is the Japanese religion of Shinto. If you ever read like manga comics or watch comic book kind of stuff, you might hear about the kami. The kami are these spirits that exist everywhere around you. Your ancestors become kami when they die. That's why you have a little shrine in the backyard. Yeah. And even though Japan is one of the most secular nations on the planet, nonetheless, they all practice this. They all go out when on the big days to worship the kami. They just don't think of it as religion the way we do. Yeah. But it's just one more form of paganism. So every tree has a spirit. Every river has a spirit. Every mountain has a spirit. And if you live nearby, you want that spirit to be your friend. So you go out and you worship. You offer incense. You make sacrifices, blah, blah, blah. Ahaz does this. He has the temple of the true God saying, my name is here to give you a great and everlasting kingdom. And he goes out to worship the trees and the stars. From here, we're going to come back and look at what happens next in the war against these two nations, uh, the nation of Syria and, uh, and Israel. But while we're getting there, would you turn to 2 Kings chapter 16? I'll give you the page number here, 322. And we're going to pick up just a little bit more about his general reign uh, that doesn't get mentioned in Second Chronicles. Second Kings, chapter 16, 
begins on page 322, but we're going to find verse 7. It's at the very bottom of that page. All right. So what you heard already in 2 Chronicles 28 is that because of Ahaz's disbelief in God, he doesn't believe God's going to fight for him, God stops fighting for him. And as a result of the removal of that hand of protection, two other kings come down upon him. Names which probably don't mean much to you. Rezin, king of Damascus, which is also Syria, uh, and Pekah, the king of Israel. Now, you don't have to remember these names, but do notice again the historicity of this. Damascus is still a city. Syria is still a country. It's not in great shape right now, but it's been there a very long time. And at this time, it was almost an empire. Syria at Damascus was almost an empire. What stops them from becoming an empire is a nation named Assyria. And I know it can be confusing. Syria, Assyria, different places, really connected to different words. Assyria is more like Ashuria. Do you hear that? Asher. The name Asher is the man who founded Ashuria. Syria is a different place. Okay. Ashuria is going to come up here in a moment. But before that happens, the king of Damascus, this almost an empire place, is doing pretty well. And so he makes an alliance with Pekah, this king of northern Israel, the country of Israel. And he basically says to him, hey, why don't we just both split up Judah? Why don't we go down and, and take all of it? And they begin to do so. At the same time, there's two other attacks that take place. There's a rebellion from within Judah by a group called the Edomites. These are the sons of Esau. Do you remember who Esau was? Jacob's brother. The Edomites had become effectively a slave people to the Israelites under David. They rebel in Rehoboam's reign. But guess what? Uzziah and Joram bring them back. Oh, look. And then here they rebel again. So you got rebellion and civil war fomenting. You got the coastal peoples of the Philistines decide to start raiding and pillaging. And then you got an empire and a, an enemy country next door deciding to just start chopping up and taking away pieces of you, right? Uh, so when they begin to do that, Ahaz and the Judites lose. And that's where our main story is going to be today. But in the meantime, Ahaz does something that he thinks is pretty clever, which, by the way, ties this all to Isaiah chapter 7. And chapter 9, those great Christmas story bits about how the virgin will conceive and bear a son. Listen for it this year. Ahaz is in that reading every year. Isaiah meets him at the washer's gate and says, ask for a sign to prove that God will stop Syria from destroying you. And then Ahaz feigns piety. Oh, no, no, no. I won't ask for a sign. And so so uh, Isaiah goes, well, we'll give you a sign anyway. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. And oh, by the way, guess who's coming now? The king of Assyria. Okay, now, not Syria, not Israel. That's who's already attacking. And Isaiah says, Assyria is going to come and take you now. Now, this is doubly a problem to Ahaz because what Ahaz has just done is taken all of the gold and the metal that's of high quality from the temple and he sent it to the king of Assyria to ask him to stop Syria and Israel. Does this make sense? He's asked for an alliance with the greater empire to stop the little empire and protect him. And Isaiah goes, guess what? He's going to keep coming. You just gave him a reason to come and take you as well. 
Now we're going to get that story a little bit here again, starting at verse seven, where it says, so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, that's Ashuria. And he sends messengers up there saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. That's this king of Damascus. Yeah, Verse 10, when Ahaz went to Damascus, oh, I'm going to come back to that. Keep your finger at verse 10. So he gets what he wants initially, right? He says, hey, come down here and protect me. Protect me from Damascus. Protect me from Israel. And Assyria will do this. They will destroy Damascus and take it over because it's a great city. And then they will destroy Samaria and northern Israel. That all is going to happen. But again, keep the future in mind here. They're not going to stop there. For a while, he's going to be able to like say to, this is tiglath Pleasure will say to Ahaz, pay me some tribute. Just keep the taxes flowing. Everything will be fine. But by the time Hezekiah the king of uh, king of the son of Ahaz is king. Assyria is going to be at the gates of Jerusalem, having conquered the entire country, and threatening to tear down the city walls and make them all like eat each other in starvation. Again, that's another story. That's Isaiah chapters thirty-six to thirty-eight. Fantastic story. The Rabshaka, one of my favorite characters in the whole Bible. Bad guy, definite bad guy. Um, anyhow, so this starts to work out. Now, the next verse, verse 10 says, when King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, why do you think he did that? Don't you think Tiglath-Pileser said, hey, I'm going to come down to Jerusalem and visit you? Huh? And he's like, no, 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 no. Let me come up and visit you. Don't bring your army down here. It's okay. We're fine. We're good. You saved us. Thank you very much. So he goes up to, to pay homage, to pay tribute to this guy who is his now emperor. He's a king, but think of the king of Assyria as an emperor. When he's there, this is the bad stuff, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. He sees a pagan altar, an altar to Baal. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured out his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of his altar. Now, again, I mean, is there something wrong with further developing the beauty of your sanctuary? Uh, Solomon definitely did this. Others definitely did this. That's not the problem. The problem is he goes and he sees pagan religion. And he says, I'm going to replace the religion of Jesus with the pagan religion. 
I'm going to take this altar that's built to Baal. I'm going to take the altar that was built to Yahweh. I'm going to move that one out of the way and put the one to Baal there. And then look what he does. Remember what Uzziah did? He goes and he offers his own sacrifices. That's even going back to what did King Saul do that got him removed from the throne? He thought he was a priest and offered his own sacrifices. Yeah. So he goes and he does that. Of course, leprosy doesn't break out on him because God's got bigger punishments than leprosy. He knows this guy's not going to repent. But what is Ahaz doing? He's systematically destroying the church. Piece by piece, he starts removing all the parts of worship that God had established. It wasn't like Solomon or David made this up. Moses wasn't out up on the mountain smoking drugs, thinking up deep thoughts. God spoke to him and said, do it just like this. The reason? To point forward to the narrowness of God's salvation, something called the scandal of particularity. Jesus is the only Savior. Why? Because Jesus is the only Savior. That's why. Because he's the one who God actually sent. Muhammad wasn't sent. How do I know that? He's still dead. That's how I know that. Huh? Buddha wasn't sent. How do I know that? He's still dead. That's how I know that. Jesus, he is risen. Alleluia. And the prescriptions for the temple and all the things that went on in that temple were there to point forward to that particular reality. So when Ahaz comes and starts removing these things, he's taken the cross down from the sanctuary. He's taken away the chalice and replacing it with Coca-Cola. He's doing anything he can in order to do whatever he wants. And in so doing, he is losing what God has given. He's losing the grace. He's throwing it away. Let's look at verses 17 and 18 before we go back to 2 Chronicles. It's more of the taking down. King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them. And he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal. Okay, what does that mean? One of the things in this, this temple courtyard, you can't imagine this temple courtyard. It was huge. Our, our sanctuary maybe is a little bit smaller than the actual temple, but outside there was this huge courtyard. That's where the altar was, big altar. They're burning oxen on this altar, the big altar. And, and they have all sorts of other stuff out there for the, the sacrifices and the incense and whatnot. One of the things they needed to do was to clean everything, wash everything. And one of the ways they, or the way that they did this is what's called the sea. You know, think like the ocean, but why did they call it the sea? Because it was big. It was a bronze bull that was so, bull, B-O-W-L, that was so big, it had to sit upon 12 bronze bulls, B-U-L-L-S. Think 12 life-size bulls made of bronze. I mean, it would barely fit in this room. And they have a giant bowl of water sitting there on top of that. And then they go up and they take like the sacrifices and they dip them in the water to wash them. This was all part of the worship that God had prescribed for them. He takes that, think how much money this will cost. He takes it down, just the workmen alone. They don't have a crane. Uh, he takes it down, he replaces it. He starts doing his own thing. That's, that's what that means. Verse 18, he covered way the way, excuse me, and the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance uh, for the king, he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the kings of Assyria. 
So scholars think that means he wanted to use the temple as a defensive fallback. And so he covered up certain entryways to fortify it like a fortress. Right. Um, and so uh, the rest of the verse 19. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, which may or may not be the book of Second Chronicles? Uh, probably is. If you would turn back there, we'll, we'll continue on with our story from there. But we're going to skip over the actual war and go to the conclusion of Ahaz's life first. Beginning at verse 27. Excuse me. At verse 20. Sorry. Lost in my notes. At verse 17. So page 379. Verse 17. I already mentioned this um, earlier. The Edomites. So we won't spend much time on it. But it says the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. And the Philistines had made raids on the cities in the Shephalah and in the Negev of Judah. That's the south. And had taken Beth Shemesh, Aijalon, Gerderoth, Soko and its villages. Timnah with its villages and Gizmo with its villages. And they settled there. So just more cataloging of all the land he's losing. He's not doing well. Let's put that in church terms. The kids aren't staying in church. They're all leaving. That's what's happening to him, all right? What's wrong? Well, a lack of repentance. That's what's wrong. A lack of lack of truth. That's what's wrong. Verse 19, the Lord humbled, think humiliated Judah because of Ahaz, the king of Israel. Uh, notice how he's called the king of Israel. He's the king of Judah, but it calls him the king of Israel. He is standing in for the whole country at this point. This is why God's wrath comes upon them. For he had made Judah act sinfully, and been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, that's this king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Right. So he sent all this money to the guy. The guy's going to make it hard on him anyway. Let's look at verse 22 and following, kind of the end of his reign. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. This same King Ahaz. I, I really like the way the New King James has that. So it says, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. And then it says, this is that King Ahaz. Uh, yeah, don't, I understand it's a lot of faithlessness, but you got to understand who this guy is. Right? That's who this guy is. 4 verse 23, he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him. What? Stop on that one. He knows he got beat. By this other nation. So what's he think? Their gods are better. I'll be more like them. It'll work out. Uh, he's trying to win over the power he sees in others rather than believing that God has already given it to him. Yeah. He said, because the gods of the kings of Syria help them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all his ways from the first to the last, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Maybe the book of Kings. Maybe not, probably is. And Ahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. 
and Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. So, again, he's not buried with David because he's not faithful. All right. That's the overview. Now we're going to zoom in on the narrow story, right? So let's look at uh, back at verse 7 of chapter 28, right? Where it says, in this battle sent by Pekah, king of northern Israel, to invade the north of Judah, Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim. Ephraim's the main tribe that's ruling northern Israel. Zikri killed Messiah, the king's son. Probably not Ahaz's son, probably Joram's son. So the king's brother gets killed. And Ezrakim, the commander of the palace. So like a, a major CEO for management in the army. And Elkanah, the next in authority to the king, the king's right-hand man. They all die in a battle against Ephraim. Ephraim being northern Israel. Along with, remember from verse 6, 120,000 men of Judah. There were about 300,000 fighting men in Judah at this time. One third of their forces are destroyed. And then, we heard this read a while ago, the men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives. Their relatives? Yeah, they're all related to each other. Northern Israel, southern Israel, that's Judah, they're all descended from Jacob. They're all descended from the guy named Israel. They take their own extended relation captive, women, sons, and daughters, 200,000 people. See, huge number. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. That's the capital of northern Israel. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded. We know almost nothing about Oded except this. They showed up this one day in front of a huge army carrying 200,000 slaves. And he said, stop. What are you doing? Right? He said, behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves? Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? In short, it wasn't because you were so great that you won this war. It was because God was really against the guy you were fighting against. So before you like trample on the people who you don't love anymore, before you just make your neighbors slaves of you and take all their stuff, why don't you realize that God's actually angry with you too? And this country, Assyria, I mean, it's not long until Assyria is going to destroy northern Israel. But what's amazing is you actually see some repentance here. You say them hearing what Oded says, and they change, right? So that verse 12 Certain chiefs of the men of Ephraim, I read their names earlier, we'll leave them for now. They stood up against those who were coming from the war and said, You shall not bring the captives here, for you propose to bring upon us guilt from the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt. For our guilt is already great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. I think recovering the idea that your your wickedness is going to blow back on you in real life is something the modern Christian church really needs to do. It's not about whether or not you go to heaven. Jesus has you, yeah? But if you go out and do stupid things, stupid things are going to happen. They're going to bring guilt back down on you. There's always a balancing of the scales. If I throw a ball up, it falls down. If I sleep around with a bunch of women, I'm going to have a bunch of kids that aren't really my kids because I can't spend time with all of them. I'm going to get some diseases. I have some angry women. It's just going to happen. It's the way that it is, right? And so the awareness that evil blows back on you is really beautiful here. 
We should recover some of that. But also, I mean, here's kind of the point. We're going to have to like shorten this to end up and, and close up our time here. Notice who these men are. What city are they coming out of? They're coming out of Samaria. Who are they looking upon? People who would live down in Judah, who would travel between Jerusalem and Jericho with some regularity. And they're seeing these people who would travel between Jerusalem and Jericho, who are completely captured and taken over. All their stuff and all their lives has been taken from them. And as Samaritans, they are good to them. You see where I'm going here? If not, I think we'll just leave the rest of Second Chronicles and finish our morning here with Luke chapter 10, which is way further up in that Bible. You got to look all the way to what is it? Page 868, Luke chapter 10, with this story, this parable, just means a story of the good Samaritan. Yeah? Uh, verse 23. Oh, we won't start there. Uh, we'll start at, we'll skip all the bit about uh, the questioning. We'll just get to the story. I mean, there's this guy, he's testing Jesus. He wants to think it's about him. He wants to prove that he's good enough. And Jesus tells this story. Verse 30, it's page 869. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. He saw him, he passed by. So likewise, a Levite, he came to the place, he saw him, he passed by, but a Samaritan, an enemy, an enemy, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Now, I think Jesus didn't just make that up. I think he got it from 2 Chronicles 28. Where those four men take all the spoil, they clothe the people, they bind up their wounds, they put them on pack animals, and they take them off to where they should be going. Jesus is no slouch. He's not just throwing stuff in the wind. He's reading the Old Testament because in it, he can see a testimony of himself and a testimony of the goodness of God. Now then, of course, he says to this man who wants to prove his own value, you go and do likewise. And certainly as Christians, we should be people of compassion. Like, it's not really an option. I don't want to have compassion on people. It's not my spiritual gift. That's nonsense. Shut up. You have had mercy given to you. See how good it is. See what it did to you. See how it changed you. Imagine what would happen if you could change others with such mercy. Now, am I saying that every moment of every life, you just let everybody do what they want? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that even when you have an enemy, pray for your enemy while you pray against your enemy. Even when you got to go to war against the country, not that you're going to be doing this soon, but even when you got to do that, do it as a Christian. Do it with clemency. Do it with a desire to build up rather than tear down. Just have the compassion be your first step. The thing that drives you because it's the thing that drives your God. And here's where then, at the very end of this, I I really want you to see that while the parable of the Good Samaritan and really that entire story about King Ahaz is about what we should do, we should be good people, 
We should pray to the true God. We should not reject the true God's promises. We should be faithful and seek the good of all those who are around us. The final end of this isn't about you. It's about Jesus for you. And the story of the Good Samaritan isn't about how good the Samaritans were. It's about how that prophet came and preached repentance and they repented. And it's also then about how, well, when you were taken captive, when you had your life stolen, when the devil puts you in the chains of your own shame and sin, Jesus didn't pass by on the other side, like so many other religions do. The words of the Buddha near the end of his life were, save yourselves. Jesus doesn't do such a thing. Jesus enters into your need. He takes you, he puts you on his own animal. Think of the cross. He pays the price of your care at the end. Think of the cross and the blood that he shed. And he says, I'm going away, but I'll come back. And when I do, I'm going to make it all good for you. That's again, oh, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Now, just again, to try to wrap this up, I don't have a fancy smashy ending for you here. I hope we didn't lose the cross in the history lesson. I hope the history lesson was a good history lesson and made it kind of interesting to listen to. I hope you see that there's wisdom to be gained in these stories and more than anything else, I want you to believe that Jesus is your Savior. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please rise. For-